audio conversation with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, recorded March 5th, 2012. I just met Rosemary at uh, the UFO conference that took place just a, a little over a week ago in Scottsdale, Arizona. She was uh, very soft-spoken when I talked to her, very calm, and uh, I was almost a little bit intimidated by her by her very quiet demeanor. Uh, she gave a presentation, which I thought was very interesting, where she compared and contrasted the jinn lore from the Middle East, and lore, I guess, implies mythology, though she takes it very seriously. The, uh, so she was comparing the jinn phenomena with the modern-day UFO abduction phenomena, and she basically had bulleted points, and she would go right down the list, and that both phenomena, both set of entities, were reported to perform uh, what would be similar sets of procedures or intrusions. It was very interesting and sort of bold in, in the context of a UFO convention to get up in front of an audience of diehard believers and you know throw a great big giant wrench into what might be their belief system. So I gave her a lot of credit for that. Rosemary has been researching this stuff since the early 1980s, so for the last 30 years she's been writing and playing the role of researcher. And her long list of books would be far too long for me to list here. I'll put some links into the show notes, and I'll just list her topics of interest here, which would be angels and fairies and demons and jinn and dream work and uh, the EVP, the electronic voice phenomena, along with ghosts and hauntings, magic and alchemy, mysterious creatures like big creatures like uh, monsters like Bigfoot, uh, Ouija boards, psychic skills, shadow people, spirituality, uh, werewolves, vampires, witches, and even the UFO and ET phenomena. She's quite the generalist, and and I liked that because it gave me a way to ask some very, very big picture questions about what may be an umbrella phenomena, that, that an overarching phenomena that may account for all of this. Uh, we didn't come up with all the answers, but we did come up with a lot of very good questions, and I enjoyed the act of speculating with her. She was she was very well informed. Now, a few things came up during the interview that we didn't have a chance to follow up on, and so at the very end, I'm going to add a few extra minutes of me, uh, sort of a summation of some things that well, I'll properly address at the end. This interview runs just about an hour. I uh, got a lot out of it, and I hope you do too. Please enjoy. Rosemary, I, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Well, you're welcome, Mike. It was nice to meet you at the UFO Congress, and it seems like we have a lot in common. Yes, I saw your presentation there at the conference, and, and you did something that I was very um, impressed with. You, you compared and contrast the sort of mythical jinn to the modern-day abduction lore. And and I thought that was quite interesting that you stepped out of, out of out of what might be a box and then tried to be a little more inclusive, to to more phenomena. I was just impressed that at, at your your conclusions. Well, my presentation did break new ground in ufology in terms of uh, another explanation for the ET abduction phenomenon. I've been uh, tracking. Uh, ufology and ET abductions for a good number of years. It's one of my areas of study along with everything else in the paranormal. 
And uh, I've also been following the jinn and other kinds of entities that human beings seem to have a lot of experiences with, in particular shadow people as well. And uh, I don't consider the jinn to be imaginary or mythological uh, any more than um, any more or less, really, than any other entity that human beings report having experiences with. They're very real. And we in the West have tended to view them as fairy tale entities because uh, of the way they've entered our folklore. Uh, they really haven't entered our paranormal lexicon. Uh, we've relegated them to Arabian Nights kind of folk tales and uh, silly genies dressed in um, ancient uh, Arab garb, granting wishes and living in bottles. Uh, that, uh, that encourages us to consider these beings as something totally imaginary, when in fact they're, they're, they are part of the spectrum of entities that human beings have been engaged with, I think, since the beginning of our time on this planet. And uh, in turn, they're very powerful entities. They're masterful shapeshifters. They have uh, agendas and purposes concerning human beings as do other entities. And after spending years studying uh, different manifestations that I came to the conclusion were jinn, and learning more about the jinn, when I went back to the abduction literature, uh, I saw the presence of the jinn everywhere. And uh, it's it's sort of like, as I said in my talk, hiding in plain sight. And it's it's not really anybody's fault here in the West. I'm certainly not criticizing other researchers by any means, because if if we don't know about something, and many people have never heard of the jinn, well, we don't even know the questions to ask about them. They're, they're invisible on our playing field. So my purpose in, the, in presenting the talk and in writing the book that's in progress is to make the invisible visible. They're here. They're players, and they need to be taken into consideration. And they're players in the same way that ghosts would be players, in the same way that, that demons or, or any other phenomena would be a player. Well, absolutely, and I do believe that the jinn play a role in uh, some of our more problematic hauntings, uh, especially when people have uh, negative hauntings uh, that are difficult to resolve. They are responsible for some possession cases. I think they get misidentified as demons a lot. And that, and that makes perfect sense. Now, you are a rare researcher in this field because you do something that, um, that not many people do. You are much more of a, I guess the only word that comes to mind is a generalist, where you look at uh, multiple phenomena and don't, and don't keep yourself in, in one little box like a UFO abduction researcher might. I've never been able to confine myself to one aspect of the field. I, I've been this way my whole life, you know, a curious Georgette, so to speak. Uh, I, I just want to know about everything. And uh, the deeper I went into my research in various fields, uh, it became apparent to me years and years ago, I've been doing this full time since the early 1980s, that everything's interconnected in a way. And it's mystified me that uh, researchers get really tunnel vision. Uh, now, uh, and here again, I'm not criticizing other researchers for wanting to gain expertise and deep knowledge in certain fields. That's very important that we have experts. Uh, 
who really go into a particular area uh, in depth. But it's also very important to have a working knowledge of other areas of the paranormal. And when I say the paranormal, I am including ufology in that uh, and cryptozoology uh, as well, even though many times the people in those fields see themselves as totally separate from the paranormal. The paranormal is part of a landscape that's very uh, murky and shape-shifting in and of itself. There are, there are no hard and fast boundaries in it. And there are huge overlaps from one, one area into another. So if we confine ourselves just to a particular piece of the field, then we miss a lot of data that could shed a lot of light on what we're doing. Now, I have um, uh, seen very much a sort of filtering system that's in place with some of the UFO research that goes on, the, the UFO abduction research. And... Um, you know, I've read books and, and stuff over the decades, and it's only within about the last six years that I've been looking into it and playing the role of a researcher myself. And once I started to meet people who claimed the firsthand uh, 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 abduction experience, what I found was that their own experiences were filled with divergent phenomena, uh, including like psychic skills, channeling, poltergeist, you know, weird big black cats. Uh, owls and 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 really profound synchronicities, and these elements seem to be ignored, uh, sometimes with contempt, by people in the research community. Unfortunately, that's true, Mike. And I ran into the same thing myself when I uh, contacted abduction researchers to inquire uh, what um, how, how they had dealt with these other phenomena. Uh, just reading accounts of abductees, it is clear that abduction is not the only thing they're experiencing. They tend to have a wide range of experiences, and yet the attention is focused on a very small subset of phenomena. And um, uh, I think that's, again, it's a mistake because it, it limits our ability to grasp the big picture of what's really going on. And what do you sense that big picture is? I do believe that the jinn are major players in the abduction scenario. And they certainly have the capability of shape-shifting into whatever form they want. The extreme explanation would be that they account for all of the abductions, that um, they've simply manifested various forms that uh, we interpret as ETs as a way of disguising themselves and confounding us. That would be very like the jinn and the characteristics that are ascribed to them since ancient times. But um, a more moderate explanation is they're a, a hidden player uh, that has entered the abduction um, scenario for their own ends. And in that regard, they may be competing with other entities for us, for uh, our energy, for our genetic material, for the resources on the planet, for the ability to make hybrids, to infiltrate the planet. I do think that is going on. Uh, and, and so they may be one of a variety of entities. And I really don't know where the bottom line is yet. But uh, if, if I were in the Middle East, for example... Uh, I would be leaning toward the extreme 
explanation because uh, in that part of the world, the jinn do account for everything paranormal, everything that engages human beings from the, the spiritual side um, or the spirit side, I should say, uh, originates with the jinn. Uh, there are jinn and there are angels and uh, no other players on the field. Okay, that's interesting because I see the field as, as a wash in, in multiple different divergent and sometimes competing and conflicting players. One of the things that I did in the first book that I wrote on the jinn, The Vengeful Jinn, which came out last year, uh, was I devoted a good chunk of the book to laying the jinn template over other entities, so to speak. In other words, can, uh, can the jinn account for other entities that we engage with? And the answer is yes, they can. Uh, crypto creatures, for example, fit the jinn template perfectly because the jinn are known to, to like to take unusual and disturbing forms that upset human beings. Uh, this uh, would be a blend of animals or even human and animal forms. They are so uh, similar to fairies, so identical to fairies, that it's uh, very hard to say that they're not one and the same. They, the jinn actually have the best fit with fairies. And of course, in fairy lore, fairies come in multitudes of, of shapes and sizes. Once you get familiar with the jinn and their characteristics and the history of their lore and how they have um, acted out toward human beings, it's, uh, it, it's easier to accept the idea that they can shapeshift into dozens of forms that we think are entirely separate entities. And that would, again, serve their purpose because we would be very distracted thinking we're dealing with, um, you know, an A to Z, a zoo of, of uh, entities, when in fact uh, everything would trace back to the jinn. And the jinn don't have a single purpose in dealing with us either. Uh, I don't think any entity does. We, we tend to look at them like uh, monoforms, you know, that, uh, you know, we, we have the, for example, with the, the abduction scenario, we've got these abducting greys that are all these cookie cutter uh, creatures, uh, when in fact they're really not. And, and the jinn are a lot like us. They're, um, they're good ones, they're bad ones, evil ones, ambivalent ones, ones that want to play with us, one that, ones that are fascinated by us, that fall in love with us, uh, ones that um, uh, dislike us, and, and ones that would like to destroy us. Now, if I, if I follow your line of, of thinking there, the jinn could then be simply uh, wearing a costume, in a, in a sense, or taking on the role of the you know, the, the abduction phenomena. And would that account for all the many other things within the uh, UFO uh, lore? I'm just thinking of the, uh, you know, getting radar sightings, getting burn marks in a circle in a backyard, um, you know, those types of things. They have the uh, capability of uh, taking form, uh, at least for periods of time in our dimension. And I think um, the, the ones, the hostile ones who want to reoccupy our dimension, uh, hybrids would suit their purpose. And uh, they can uh, create poltergeist effects. They can manifest things. I've had that happen in a number of cases, um, negative haunting cases that are gin cases. So they, they would be capable of those things. 
I think that our experiences that we label extraterrestrial are interdimensional anyway, and uh, that we're dealing with phenomena that uh, can incorporate things in our physical world, like um, uh, scorch marks and uh, the appearances of, of craft that, uh, of course, are, are never really uh, found. Um, something like leaving, uh, would they crash a craft? Could they do something like that, penetrate our dimension with some sort of vehicle that uh, would leave physical traces? Um, it's not out of the question, con considering the abilities that are ascribed to the jinn. Uh, and here again, there are researchers around the field, and I, I have discussed the jinn with uh, Muslim researchers as well, uh, who feel that the jinn do account for everything paranormal. Um, ghosts of the dead, they could masquerade as ghosts of the dead, but there are legitimate ghosts of the dead. I don't think they're the same as angels. Uh, angels seem to be at odds with the jinn, and even in ancient lore have the ability to nullify the jinn. But uh, the beings that we call demons could be jinn, the fairies, the elementals, the crypto creatures, and uh, now we have these alleged extraterrestrials uh, who also could be jinn. So my message to the uh, the audience at the UFO Congress in Arizona was we have to broaden our thinking and uh, we have to start being more open-minded about possible explanations. Um, we've tended to uh, slot things. Uh, Oops, I just lost you. Are you there? Hello? Hi there. Hi. I lost you. I'm not sure what happens. You know what? Sometimes happens my internet connection, which I share with my next door neighbor, sometimes just drops out uh, for just a second, and that's all it takes to disconnect us. So I think that was happened at my end. It's the gin. It's those every, gin. It's those dreaded gin. Um, every time I talk about the gin, they interrupt the calls. And I guess, you know, those nutty tricksters. Okay, here, <laughs> let me, um, I'll ask another question. Um, when I asked you before about the gin... Uh, having a hundred percent control over the UFO phenomena, I asked that on purpose. I, I, my sense is that's probably not true. You know, I don't quite know what that means. I don't know whether it's ninety-nine percent or one percent, but um, that is difficult for me to wrap my mind around completely. But I very much understand where you're coming from in this. Now, could it be that there's a like a meta phenomena, an umbrella phenomena, that all these apparitions seem to uh, adhere to, whether that be the fairies or the jinn or, you know, the UFO abduction phenomena. Um, you know, it just seems like leprechauns do similar things to a little person in the mountains of South Dakota, if that makes sense. So could there be something like a larger overall phenomena, and each of these uh, smaller phenomena would then adhere to a, a, certain, a certain way of acting? And we simply don't know the answer to that yet, Mike. Uh, and that's a question that other researchers have asked. Is there like a, a, a single answer behind everything? And uh, even John Keel talked about that decades ago. He was uh, well ahead of his time. Um, and there could be something yet behind the gin. 
if the jinn account for uh, all or most of our paranormal phenomena, is there something behind them? And that's something that we haven't discovered yet. As I, uh, I noted in my talk uh, in Arizona, uh, I'm not willing yet to go to the extreme explanation that the jinn account for everything. It's, it is a lot for someone to wrap their head around, especially in the West. We've been so conditioned for centuries to dealing with this uh, pantheon of, of entities that uh, to think that they're all originating from the same source, it's, it's a lot to take on board. Uh, I am willing to uh, think that the jinn account for a lot of what we are experiencing and I have to be willing to go the distance if the evidence really points in that direction. Right now, we don't have enough researchers asking questions, taking the gin into account. Will we ever is even another question uh, to consider because... Um, I think there's a prejudice against them because they're Middle Eastern, they're Arabian, they were absorbed into Islam, and so people dismiss them as a Muslim thing when that's simply not the case, any more than angels are just a Christian thing. Entities do get absorbed into spiritual traditions and religions, but that doesn't limit them in terms of how we deal with them and how they interact with human beings. They're really everywhere. They pay no attention to human religion and geography and uh, country borders. Yes, yes, I agree. Um, okay, here, let me share a short story. This comes from a friend who I've talked with a great deal, and I've also interviewed her on the same podcast series, and she claims a, a lot of contact, uh, you know, classic alien abduction contact in her life. And, and, the, and she has dealt with both the greys and these uh, very handsome, tall, beautiful entities that she calls the blondes. And she says that the greys, being somewhat emotionless, will simply open up a portal in, in her, for instance, in her bedroom, and they'll just walk in through the bedroom wall. Now, she says the, the blondes, out of a courtesy of sort, will land their UFO, you know, a few hundred yards away from the house, and then... They'll basically come and walk through the door and then take them, you know, her and her husband to the flying saucer. And she says they do this out of a courtesy because when the greys open the portal in the house, uh, her house is plagued with poltergeist activity after having an experience with the greys. She is not plagued with poltergeist experiences after the visitation by the blondes. And she has concluded that what happens when they open a portal so close or right inside the house that all kinds of other things will then rush in through that open door. And, and the manifestations she has is orbs as well as um, poltergeist activity, uh, you know, classic, uh, you know, things being moved around in the house, uh, lights going on and off, that type of thing. Uh, and she equates that to, you know, this, this basically the door being left open, something rushes in. Could it be that the jinn are, are simply rushing in that open door that's, that was caused by what would be ET visitation? It's certainly possible, and I've seen that effect in many of the cases that I've investigated over the years, from possession cases to negative haunting, persistent negative haunting scenarios, 
to uh, entity um, visitations, uh, bedroom invasion, dream invasion, you know, abduction and things like that. And uh, yes, when these portal areas open up, there's a huge array of activity and it seems that there are a variety of, of spirits and presences that take advantage of that opening. The jinn are very capable of opening portals or at least knowing where to find them. So um, that could, could be uh, an effect. Uh, also, we have to consider that a variety of jinn might come through the portals. It's not just one jinn, but many jinn in, uh, in various guises. If they are players with other entities in the abduction scenario, uh, then the questions that come to mind is, are, are they competing or are they collaborating and cooperating? Why is it that so many abductees have shadow people visits? Uh, when shadow people um, don't seem to be ETs per se, they often come in advance of abductions, including... Uh, even showing up years before the the onset of abductions, but yet they, uh, I have come to the conclusion that shadow people are the jinn. That's the only explanation that really accounts for uh, their appearances and behavior. So uh, none of these entities are really communicating to us what they're really up to. We get a lot of stuff from these entities that you know, we're wrecking the planet and they're going to help us do this and help us do that or simply that they want our material to help resuscitate their own race or create hybrids. But nobody really knows if, what the truth is. Now, they could tell us anything. Now, you must be familiar with the character known as the Shadow, and this comes from old-time radio as well as comic books and pulp magazines. I did a little research on it and um, just before this interview, and I think it the story, the first story was in 1930, and it was quite popular for, for a number of years. Now, the Shadow is is a sort of a superhero crime fighter character, and it's this character named Lamont Cranston, who's a you know millionaire who lives in New York City, and he uh, is a practitioner of an ancient form of ritual magic from the Orient, and he has psychic powers and can cast a shadow over the mind of, of people. And he um, he can hide in plain sight because of that, and he often terrorizes the people he comes in contact with. Now his costume, which I find very interesting as a correlation to the shadow people, his costume is a long draping cape and oversized fedora. And I'm just amazed at how closely this piece of pop culture matches the shadow people lore. I've thought that uh, the creators of, you know, fictions like um, the, the Shadow and um, um, The Twilight Zone even has a very compelling episode from the 1980s called The Shadow Man, that um, perhaps the authors and the creators were shadow people experiencers and they were writing from their own experiences. Yes. Are you familiar with an author named Jeffrey Kripal? I'm not. Okay, he did an excellent book uh, called Mutants and Mystics, where he compares and contrasts pulp fiction work from the from you know bygone era as well as comic books through the ages, and how closely those relate to the UFO lore as well as the um, supernatural entities, whether that be ghosts or demons or gods. Um, so anyway, I just thought that was interesting that that fits so closely. Yes, I, I and I often wonder, you know, whether uh, you know that might be one explanation that uh, that the 
author of the original shadow stories was a shadow person experiencer or another option is that you know it could have welled up from the collective uh, consciousness and just seeped into his writing style uh you know i don't think we'll ever find an answer but but i'm you know i'm just fascinated by the overlapping of pop culture and these iconic images from uh you know from the paranormal that that show up in our in our present day pop culture Many of our fiction writers are visionaries in in that regard, and they do uh, tap into something in the Akashic or the collective uh, consciousness and uh, wind up writing reality. They they don't write fiction, they write reality. And uh, at some point, the reality catches up with the fiction. We see that in science fiction and in the paranormal, in horror writing all the time. Uh, the best writers really are true visionaries. They are seeing worlds that exist. That could be a little blurb on the back of uh, Jeffrey Kripal's book, uh, just exactly what you just said there. So yes, uh, I agree. And, and I, Philip K. Dick comes to mind as far as someone who's quite a visionary and, and, and the, uh, the stuff that he wrote about um, certainly resonates and feels very real now, uh, you know, 30 years later. Mm-hmm. Yes. All the great science fiction writers from the uh, post-World War II era, uh, I think, um, were tapping into something, something uh, about the future unfolding concerning humanity and the, um, the cosmic picture that we would be coming into contact with. Here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell one more story. This is from a woman that I've talked to on the phone a couple of times and her and I have agreed to do an interview. It just hasn't happened yet, but she told a story. She's a native American woman who lives in Ontario and she was, um, grieving over the loss of a close friend. So she uh, had a teepee set up on her property and she went into the teepee and burned sage and she was beating a drum. So she was performing a ritual ceremony. Uh, While this was happening, she sensed something outside, like pushing in on the fabric of the teepee. And when she peeked outside, there were five Bigfoot standing very close to the teepee which scared her. So she, she went back in and she beat the drum really loud and made a bunch of noise. And then she peeked out again and they had moved away. So what she did is she ran towards her house. And when she got to the house, her kids were saying, mom, mom, something's going on in the house. It's scary. And she's like, what's happening? And the kids described shadow people, you know, moving around the house. And uh, she was so freaked out, she wanted to get her husband, who was in the garage, which was in a separate building. So she ran from her house out to the garage. And while she was running to the garage, she looked up and there was a giant triangle-shaped UFO hovering above the driveway. And she said it was even uh, like flittering in and out of reality, like a, like a hologram would on like a, on a, a with static almost. And, and she described it very eloquently. But I, I keep on going back to this story. She's, she seems perfectly credible. And this story combines UFOs and not only UFOs, but sort of a projection of a UFO. So not even a real UFO. And then shadow people, giant cryptoids like Bigfoot, and then, it, you know, it seemed to be all triggered by a ritual ceremony. I just would love to get your take on this. This seems kind of, you know, right down your your, uh, your line of thought. Well, something like a ritual ceremony uh, sends out a lot of energy into uh, different planes. And it could be like a signal or a beacon that uh, something hones in on. Um, certainly uh, a ritual 
especially attempting to contact spirits or something that's honoring the dead, uh, does open up a portal. Now, another connection that is consistently ignored and often with, with contempt uh, in the crypto field and the UFO field is the obvious, blatant connection between Bigfoot sightings and UFO sightings. The two go hand in hand. Where you find a lot of one, you find a lot of the other. And yet nobody wants to cross that line and say why. And, and I agree, and I love crossing that line, and I love saying why. I don't really care if I get an answer because I think, you know, we're, we're you know, peering into the unknown. We can only speculate. And, but I, when I was at that conference, the same conference you were at, I talked to a fellow named David. Oh, I can't remember his last name right now. Hi there, this is Mike. I am chiming in during the editing process. I just wanted to give the fellow's proper name. His name is David Weatherly, and he is just about to publish a book titled Black-Eyed Children. And it is a very creepy uh, collection of stories about uh, an apparition that seems to appear uh, at doors, you know, stopping people in their cars of, of these kids between the ages, I guess, of about 9 and 12 that uh, don't seem entirely real. They produce profound terror in the people who witness them, and uh, they have big black eyes. Everything in their eyes is black. So creepy, creepy stuff, uh, and it reminds me a lot of the Shadow People stories. There's sort of an overlapping of these two stories. I hope to get David on this audio podcast series at some point because I'm very eager to talk to him uh, in a formal interview context about the book. What little I talked to him at the conference was was really fascinating. Okay, enough in here. Back to the interview. But I, and, and he had been doing um, research and writing a book. He's writing a book on uh, black-eyed children right now. And he had been interviewing someone who had seen Bigfoot in his backyard. And he said there was something about the sighting that he didn't get. The husband and wife both saw the Bigfoot, and it was in the middle of the night, and, and he just felt like they, they were leaving something out. So he went back to the house later and said, listen, let's, I just want to ask one more question. Um, I feel like you're leaving something out, and, and uh, I, I, just, I feel I need to press you and figure out what that is. And they kind of relented and said, well, the, the reason we woke up in the middle of the night is because uh, the, there was bright light shining in the windows, and when we walked to the windows and looked outside, there was a UFO hovering above the backyard. So there's a, a case where both uh, where, where a couple things happened. Obviously, they they had a UFO sighting as well as a Bigfoot sighting in, you know, almost the exact same moment, and then they chose to only talk about the Bigfoot sighting because that had less uh, social stigma maybe than the UFO sighting. I just thought that was fascinating. Uh, people do make selections like that. I uh, remember some years ago. I was at a Bigfoot conference. I was a speaker at a Bigfoot conference. And uh, I was talking to one of the um, researchers, a, a man who'd been out in the field for a good number of years because he'd, he'd once had a Bigfoot sighting while he was out hunting. And it shook him up so much that he, uh, he felt that he had to find it again, you know. And he had uh, spent years and years going around to different locations trying to have another encounter and he had all sorts of equipment and fancy gear set up he had a tricked out um you know rv with a lot of state-of-the-art um, surveillance stuff in it and i asked him if he ever saw any mysterious lights in the sky or craft or, or ufo stuff he said yes all the time 
<laughs> but it was unimportant to him. All he wanted was Bigfoot. Oh, that is so funny. And, and I sense that the Bigfoot research community is, is must be unbelievably polarized. You know, on one side, you have people looking for a giant ape that just how, uh, managed to elude detection all these centuries um, that's living you know, just in the woods of the Pacific Northwest and, and such. And then on the other side of that, that same research community is, is folks that are looking to find a sort of a ultra terrestrial or a, or a, uh, a cryptid that enters our realm through a doorway from another dimension. Most of the Bigfoot researchers are convinced that they are searching for a flesh and blood creature. Uh, I am convinced that Bigfoot is an ultra-terrestrial. And I would side on your side. So if they did have a pie fight at one of these conventions uh, between the two uh, factions, the the people who believe it was a a giant humanoid ape-like creature would then win the pie fight. Uh, They certainly would. They would outnumber the others. There are researchers that are becoming more open-minded, at least willing to consider the ultra-terrestrial explanation, but it's still heavily weighted in favor of flesh and blood. Hey, when I I met you, we didn't talk for very long, but we talked for a little bit, and I... um one of the questions I asked you, I said, so in your research, have you ever had any personal experiences of the paranormal? And um, you sort of rolled your eyes and you laughed and you said, oh, yes, lots of them. And, and could you give me um, an example of one? I've had numerous encounters with shadow people. Uh, and so that leads into gin. I've, and I've had um, encounters with gin in various forms. Uh, I've had angel experiences that were quite um, benevolent and even mystical in nature. Uh, fairy experiences, uh, most of which have been pleasant, not okay, all just, fairy just experiences. Tell, tell about one of the fairy experiences. Uh, well, I had a fairy that lived in one of my houses, and uh, I became aware of him while I was meditating. Uh, he was made out of what seemed to be when I could see him clairvoyantly, uh, he seemed to be made out of vegetation, uh, like tree bark and leaves and things like that. It's about two feet high. And uh, he lived in the garden behind the house, but he came in the house. He was attracted to my energy, and uh, he would come through the sliding glass door into the lower level of the house. And uh, I sensed that he preferred a, a corner in the uh, main room down there. So I set up a a little sort of fairy nook or altar space for him and I would leave things just as little presents and he seemed to like that Uh, I knew he was not my imagination because other people who had clairvoyant ability could could, um, perceive him too uh, even though I would never say anything about him and uh, he seemed to get a little bristly sometimes uh, at certain people uh, which seemed to be more protective than antagonistic When uh, I went through a divorce and I moved, uh, I told him he was welcome to come with me, but I I knew that he would not because he was tied to the land there, and that was his home. His home was not with me. It was with the land. And uh, so he, I presume that he's still there. Oh, that's fascinating. Now, that's interesting because I have an account that I've heard uh, someone talked about seeing a fairy close up and... Uh, basically, it flew up to her window. She was in a car, and it flew up to her window, and she just saw it for a second, and, it's, and then it just zipped off. And she described it as being made out of leaves, uh, like its whole 
uh, structure and body was made out of like autumn leaves with that beautiful golden color. And mm-hmm. she talks about seeing it, you know, in complete light of day. Oh, I could certainly perceive uh, this entity in daytime as, uh, you, you know, by reality TV is skewed things. Uh, you don't need to uh, have darkness around you to perceive the unseen. It just looks scarier on television. But I do quite a few of my investigations during the day, and a lot of my experiences happen during the day. Oh, this is so good. This is fascinating. So here, let me ask you a question now. So you said you've had shadow people encounters. Mm-hmm. And then earlier on in this interview, you said you noticed the connection with people who've had shadow experiences as well as people who've had UFO encounters. And then do you sense that in yourself? I've never felt that um, I was abducted. I've had um, a few entity visitations that, for lack of a better term, I would class as potentially E.T., um, just because of their appearances. But I've uh, actually never seen any mysterious lights or craft in the sky. I'd love to, but that's uh, one of the experiences that I'm missing yet. I've never had missing time. Uh, I never have undergone any sort of regression, however, to to see if I have uh, masked memories that just aren't on the surface. But um, it's uh, I, I seem to experience the uh, surrounding phenomena rather than, you know, the core abduction experience itself, which I would not want. It's, I think it's a horrific experience. Um, it can tear some people apart. It certainly is very disruptive to a lot of lives. And I, I certainly don't want that in my life. I think my purpose as a researcher and an investigator has given me uh, a, natu- uh, a very good natural buffer against a lot of intrusive, disruptive, invasive experiences. I could not do this work if I was uh, in constant upheaval over having entities have control of me. Uh, and by saying that, I'm not uh, taking anything for granted. I have a huge respect for what I'm dealing with in the field. There are many entities out there who are extremely powerful, and uh, I do not believe in conjuring. I do not believe in summoning. And there are times when you just simply have to fold your cards and get out because things are just getting out of hand. So um, it requires a great deal of grounding uh, and buffering to do anything Uh, concerning hostile entities and abducting ETs are hostile. You know, we've got abductees who say, oh, no, they're wonderful. They're here to help us. I don't think they're here to help us. I think they're here to take advantage of us. And some of them would like to think, would like us to think that they're here to help us. Yeah, that that gets very murky when you when you talk to people who are the love and light crowd, and then you talk to people who are you know feel you know horrendously victimized and terrorized. It's a it's a sharp divergence of experience, and in both experiences are part of the overall puzzle. And but but I'm I'm a completely at a loss to try to to understand what is the larger experience with the UFO abduction phenomena. It certainly can be taken as quite invasive and frightening uh, and I've had some f- extremely frightening experiences in my life it fr- it fear in a way that that just it would be impossible for me to even describe uh, the no vocabulary words could 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 make it understandable 
The shadow people can be quite intimidating, and uh, they can radiate uh, malevolence and a downright evil that shakes people to their core. Um, I uh, get a lot of accounts sent to me in my websites, and I hear a lot of accounts when I go out and, and um, make public appearances. And people tell me about encounters that they feel are demonic and E.T. and, and shadow people. Well, shadow people terrify people more than anything else. Um, there's something about the energy that they emanate that uh, absolutely uh, it, it um, scars people, even if they've only had one experience. Now, certainly the, the abduction scenario is I'm not making light of that at all because um, uh, many of those individuals go through um, tremendous psychological uh, damage even to cope with and try and recover from these experiences. When I went back and revisited a lot of the abduction literature, especially the early abduction literature that began emerging, in, especially in the 1980s, um, there were individuals who would recount absolutely horrendous experiences and then come to the conclusion that they were all positive and, well, this is for the good of humanity. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I have to say I'm not a clinical psychologist. However, uh, what seemed to me was uh, that some of these individuals, as a way of simply trying to come to terms with their experiences, were trying to put a positive slant on things that maybe really wasn't there. Because otherwise, without that, you have to then confront um, a a more horrible realization that you've been victimized for something very uh, malevolent, um, very much against humanity, and by some considerations, downright evil. Yes, it's a very slippery slope because you know there's so much mind control associated with the the UFO contact experience that anything could be projected into your head, including that loving. Uh, warm uh, sensation. I have yet to see any evidence of uh, any good-talking aliens doing anything, uh, doing anything um, positive for us. You know, they they come in with statements about um, you know they're going to help us, you know, lift ourselves up and you know save the planet and whatnot. And uh, yet we we have no evidence uh, that shows that they're backing any of that up. Uh, it may be that they they tell abductees that as a way of um, getting more cooperation or stilling their fear. Uh, we must be like test animals to some of them, uh, like a frightened cow in a pen, you know, about to be slaughtered or branded or something like that. Uh, and it would be to their benefit, uh, to their advantage to still that, uh, fear and panic as much as possible so they get what they want from us. Uh, one thing that, that has been noted is been, there's been a pattern where UFOs will hover above um, nuclear uh, installations with missiles and then shut them down. And um, that, to me, is great news. I love the fact that they have that ability, you know, whatever that might mean. It's just some, it's nice to know that there's a, a way to, you know, keep, keep our insanity in check, I guess. Uh, 
Okay, now here, I'm just going to, this is something that's happened in my life, and I would just love to get your take on this. I have experiences in my life that certainly seem to point to some sort of ongoing phenomena, and that, that certainly seems to match the alien abduction phenomena. I've had mm-hmm. missing time, I've seen uh, UFOs, I've seen a group of five gray aliens in my yard at one point, um, so... Uh, but I'm I'm just cautious to without a direct memory of the experience. I just can't. I, I just hate the vocabulary word alien abduction. So, but I had these experiences all through my life, and I could kind of tell them, you know, over the dinner table or at a campfire, and just tell these stories. And I had this kind of way of just going, huh, you know, who would have thunk? You know, what you know, what is it? You know, what? Do you, and uh, and I never quite believed them. And then at a point, it just felt like it was building and building, and I recognized that I had to look into this. So uh, around 2006, I decided to actively look into my own experiences. And um, I guess it forced me to see a pattern of my events, but what really shook me to the core was that looking at my own experiences, I was suddenly plagued by the most profound synchronicities. Uh, Unbelievable. Uh, and, And at first, it really freaked me out. Um, I'm a little more at peace with it now, but um, I, I guess I'm just left to conclude that these uh, synchronicities are a form of of confirmation that something actually did take place. And and I just was curious if you use synchronicity as a tool in in the way you uh, do your research, if that makes sense. I don't use it as a tool per se, but I do see synchronicity as a pattern in many of the cases that I deal with. And certainly uh, an explanation of confirmation is valid. Uh, Another thing that could be happening with people is that the, um, oh, I want to say the shock, for lack of a better term, the shock of having certain experiences opens the consciousness up to another level of awareness where synchronicities, which exist around us all the time anyway, become more apparent. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Yep. And, th- and I just have been trusting the synchronicity the way I would trust a compass on the open ocean. You know, it just keeps me in a, I just sense that they uh, appear in my life as a way to proceed forward as I, as I look into these, you know, very challenging um, phenomena and experiences. It's a, it's a way that the intuition functions, and uh, people who manage to get in very good attunement with their own intuition, which is psychic ability. Uh, I've uh, often said that intuition is a polite word for being psychic. Uh, some people can be intuitive, but it scares them to be psychic, but they're one and the same. Uh, and that when that opens up, um, then um, synchronicity becomes another way that uh, the intuition functions, that you get the validation, you get confirmation, guidance, answers to questions. The universe is truly a magical place, and it does order itself for everyone in it. Uh, And I think that's an important awareness to have, that, uh, yes, we each of us is important in that regard, that Things in the environment around us, they do speak directly to us individually for the things that we're concerned about. And that's something that I've noticed in this phenomenon, that, that um, more the synchronicity thing is that uh, it seems to be 
created or it seems like there's almost a performance that's directed directly to the individual and and uh, so the meaning might not even be able to be articulated you know to someone else but the meaning is very real and very clear to the person experiencing it absolutely and uh, some you know a skeptic would say well why would things in the cosmos speak just to little old you well, again, the universe is a magical place, and it does order itself um, in myriads of ways, uh, addressing every consciousness out there. So it's important to pay attention to those signals. Um, do you have any experiences with owls? Uh, I've had a few experiences with owls, um, nothing along the lines of experiences reported by abductees. I find it very interesting that the owl crops up in a lot of abduction accounts. Uh, I've had them show up at curiously synchronistic times when I've been out on certain investigations, especially having to do with very heavy energy like a gin case. Ooh, give me an example. Just Well, they uh, will show up in a tree or they'll fly across my car while I'm driving down the road. Something like, you know, it's, it'd be like a close encounter with an owl. You are describing something that I have experienced so much over the last, well, since, 19, well, excuse me, since 2006, when I um, started looking into this. I have been, I have seen so many owls. I actually, at one point, sort of, uh, just out of desperation, I was seeing so many owls. I, I said, listen, I'm not even going to, I declared to the universe, I said it out loud. I said, I am not going to even pay attention to the owls unless they cross my path. Then within days, uh, they started crossing my path. They would fly in front of me. They would swoop down at eye level and cross right in front of me. I've tried to document them as best I can on this blog, and I've talked to wilderness biologists. I live in a place with a lot of owls, so it's they're here, near where I live. But um, I've tried to explain it to them, and they kind of roll their eyes and say, "Oh, that doesn't that doesn't make any sense at all." You know. That said, I I have experienced the same thing, and and I don't know what to make of it. The only thing I can come away with is is just pay attention. That's the only message I'm getting, you know, pay attention to what's going on in that moment. We do need to be more mindful. And uh, we get a lot of signals all the time, and many of them just wash right over us because we're distracted with other concerns. But uh, this is one reason why I tell people that one of the most important things they can do if they're engaged in the paranormal or, or metaphysical work in any way is you... Um, benefit from a daily practice of meditation. It attunes the consciousness to uh, these subtle signals and it buffers up the aura so that you're better protected against invasive entities. It doesn't necessarily stop a lot of things for, for some people, but it can add to uh, protection and a sense of well-being. And uh, I think sometimes this kind of just goes right over people, especially in the paranormal, when they think all they need is a bag full of gear and away they go. Um, dealing with the paranormal is a subjective experience. And I have meditated for years, and I, I think that it has benefited me a great deal in my ability to navigate some very problematic channels in these fields. 
and I will also compliment you that you've been very open that you use your intuitive and psychic skills. I do. And I don't call myself a psychic because, uh, you know, that's really not my profession. And unfortunately, when people do call themselves psychic and they go out on investigations and people expect performances and that puts a lot of pressure on someone. When I go uh, out to do an investigation, I may experience a lot psychically. I may experience very little. Sometimes um, I'm in tune with what other people are experiencing psychically, and sometimes I'm getting information that just comes to me. So you have to be very flexible about it and um, uh, realize that it's it's not uniform. Um, It can wax and wane depending upon the environment you're in and the people you're around and also just how you're feeling that particular day or or evening. But it's a very valuable tool in this work, and it gets dismissed, uh, of course, by people who want to be quote-unquote scientific. And I see this a lot in the paranormal investigation field. Oh, we're just scientific. We don't use psychics. We don't pay any attention to that stuff. We're psychic as stones. We're just going to get our equipment out and tell you whether or not there are ghosts around. Well, again, this is a subjective field, and you are engaging with the invisible, uh, which may register on some equipment. It's more likely not. Uh, It's more likely if it registers on anything to register on your psychic senses. So to cut yourself off from the psychic is to cut yourself off from um, the majority of information, data, and experience in all of these fields, whether it's ufology, crypto, uh, creatures, or the paranormal. The deeper you go and the longer you stay in these fields, the more psychic you're going to become, whether you want to or not. It's just a fact. And I have uh, I've shared so much on this on the blog that I keep, uh, you know, and I do that on purpose as a sort of open diary. But I have had a number of uh, psychic flashes, and I can't control them. I can't say, you know, like now I want to be a psychic and I'll intuit something. It doesn't work that way. What happens is I just get these flashes, and oftentimes they are weird. They're so you know dead on, um, and then they all have to do with the UFO side of things. So that, that's another one of these things that, that makes me uh, think that, you know, perhaps I may have had some experience with, you know, direct contact experience in a UFO realm. Hey, um, this is one question. I, I've sort of stumbled into the role of researcher. You know, I'm not even sure if that's what I do. You know, I guess I sort of proceed forward and I write little essays and I do these interviews and I talk to a lot of people. Um, but one of the questions I've started asking people, which I, which has been very interesting, and I'll ask, um, for instance, if someone sees a UFO, I'll ask, what were you thinking or doing in the moments right before you saw that UFO? And Or whether it might be any other kind of experience, uh, whether it's an altered state of reality or whether it's... Um, you know, just before a missing time event or something. And I'm continually shocked at how profound the answers people give me are. I, I talked to one lady and I talked to her at the conference and she had was at the uh, support group in the morning. Uh, that was where people would meet and talk about um, potentially uh, abduction experiences. And she told me a story. This didn't, there was no UFO in the, in the story, there's, there's, but she did have some odd 
uh, UFO-related events at other points in her life. But the story was she was picking pecans from a tree in her yard, and she went and picked some pecans, and then she turned around, and then she turned back to face the tree, and all of a sudden she was in this altered state of reality, and the next thing she knew, she was sitting at her kitchen table, and it was dark out. Um, and I asked, like, what were you thinking in the exact moment before you had that experience? And she said, oh, I remember exactly what I was thinking. I turned around to thank the tree for giving me the pecans. And I just thought that added such a level of richness to an already rich story. It is an important factor what our state of consciousness is uh, prior to the onset of any kind of paranormal experience. And I have found patterns in certain kinds of experiences, uh, especially, for example, shadow people, that uh, a person's state of mind uh, influences the kind of experience we have and also whether or not we have an experience to begin with. I think that um, certain entities out there uh, are attracted to the vibrations of our thoughts and our emotions. And if they can uh, latch on to that and get something out of having contact with us, then, then they will. In, in the, uh, the dark side of the paranormal, I call them drive-by demons. You know, they're just, <laughs> they're just out there and um, they get a, a line on someone or see a light somewhere and they hone in on it and we have an experience. And this applies to the full range of experiences, even our benevolent, happy experiences. Yeah, I just wish, I just know that there's no a question on the MUFON investigation form that says, and what were you thinking in the moment before you saw the UFO? Um, and I wish there was, because I, I just think the, the phenomenon just becomes much more rich, I guess. I've, I said that before. Um, hey, this has, been, this has been great. Do you have anything you want to share uh, before we um, finish up here? Well, I think you've done a very comprehensive um, take here on, on a very complex topic, Mike, and I really appreciate being able to chat with you. I would, of course, like to mention my two websites, visionaryliving.com and also ginuniverse.com, where people can go and uh, browse through a lot of articles that uh, may help to point them in other directions for their own personal explorations and research. And, and I will put a link to both those websites, and I'll, and I'll give a good bio of you on the, um, uh, the show notes uh, when I post this. And this should go up just in a few days. And I also want to say, you are really the first person I've ever talked to who tells of a similar set of owl experiences to me. And I, and I found that remarkably... Um, reassuring at my end that I'm not just imagining this because you're describing uh, the owl events in the same way that I'm experiencing them. Interesting. Yeah, that is fascinating, and and I and I I'm I feel like uh, there was a chapter of my life here in when I was looking into my own set of experiences where I was really needy, and I'm a little more at peace now, and I I feel like I can proceed on a from from a much more um, uh, balanced mindset where that's not how I was when, when I first started looking into this. It, it literally changed my life. The, the bottom dropped out of my life and, and I'm leading a new life now because of having looked into this stuff. And, it, and I really appreciate your very grounded, thoughtful way of, of approaching these things and your open-mindedness not to get trapped in one tiny box when there's a, a 
a, a huge pantheon of phenomena out there. We have to keep exploring, and uh, we need more research all the time, uh, and people asking uh, a wider range of questions and being willing to look into areas that maybe even goes against their own worldviews and their own expectations. But that's the hallmark of uh, true research. You, uh, you strike out and ask the questions, and you have to accommodate the data that you get. You can't uh, force it to fit your expectations. You can't discard it. And uh, quite honestly, I've seen a lot of that in ufology where uh, data points are just conveniently dropped down black holes because they, they don't fit uh, the paradigms that uh, the researchers want to see developed. Yes, and I just appreciate your open-mindedness in all this. Hey, I would love to have you back again sometime and, uh, and, and look into these kind of uh, topics even in more depth. That would be great, Mike. Thank you very much. Hey, this went great. I just want to say thanks. I was this this went much much better than I thought, and and I uh, I know that Christopher um, O'Brien worked with you, and and uh, he's got a ton of respect for you. So that that meant a lot to me as I was as I was going into this. So. Um, uh, and likewise, uh, Chris is uh, he's one of my favorite researchers. Good, good. Yeah, I, I've hit it off really well with him. Every time I see him, we've we've spoken on the phone a bunch. I've I've shared some of my experiences in depth with him, and and um, you know, it's uh, it puzzles him. So that that meant a lot to me that he was kind of stumped, and so I guess I have permission to be stumped too. <laughs> my own experiences. <laughs> okay. Hey, once again, just thanks so much. Okay, Mike. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Hi there, this is Mike. I am chiming in at the end here. I thought that went great. I was uh, very much charmed by Rosemary and her very open-minded, calm demeanor looking at this stuff. Some of the stuff she investigates is freaking creepy, dark stuff. Now, I would be a little spooked to go down those pathways. Hey, I one of the things that came up in the conversation, in the, in the discussion here, was... Uh, UFO researchers who uh, purposely dismiss the outlying data points that don't quite fit their uh, their preconceived hypothesis. Now, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Bud Hopkins. Now, Bud is someone I liked a lot. I was very impressed with him. He was a very warm guy. He was very supportive of me. Uh, he was very helpful in a chapter of my life where I was pretty shaken up. Um, and what I'm about to share here, I don't want it to sound like a criticism because I think that Bud is a more complex fellow than than what would be a simple dismissal of the way he presents himself. Let me put it that way. Um, in the fall of 2008, I was in New York City and um, I went to visit Bud. I was I went there purposely to get hypnotized. I had spoken with him the year before in 2007 and he had tried to hypnotize me. Nothing happened. Um, I've spoken about that before and a few small minor things kind of welled up to the surface. Uh, actually very few that had to do with the phenomena. There was more just uh, little data points and little interesting things about uh, the environment I was in. So I saw some stuff very clearly. Uh, nothing to had anything to do with uh, the reason I went to visit him. So, when I saw him in the fall of 2008, and, and I spoke about some of this with Peter Robbins. So, if you've heard that interview, I may be repeating a little bit here. 
um, I was extremely nervous because the implication was that I was going to talk with him. He was going to attempt hypnosis and potentially extremely frightening things would emerge from from my subconscious. Um, I was a little bit desperate at that point uh, for some sort of answers. Um, so here's what happened. I uh, had an appointment at 3 o'clock. I was a little bit early, so instead of ringing his buzzer, I walked around the block. I got to his buzzer again. I was still a little bit early, and I walked around the block. There was actually someone on the corner uh, like trying to get signatures for some sort of Greenpeace uh, petition, and she actually laughed when I walked around the block like the third time. She's like, "Oh, you know, was, you know, was that your twin brother or something?" And and I was like, "Oh, no, no, no." And I was, you know, so uh, I was in kind of a crummy headspace. It was scary, and so uh, at three o'clock, I made it to his door. I pushed the buzzer, and um, he his his loft is on the second floor. So I walked up this flight of stairs and greeted him at the top of the stairs and when I saw him uh, he did not look well he was uh, at that point in his life he was quite ill so here was a man in his late seventies looking very weak and and unhealthy Um, and he said hey Mike I I gotta break the news to you I I, I don't feel great right now and I I don't have it in me to go through a hypnosis process let's just sit around and talk Uh, to which I said whew you know like great what a relief um, so we went into his living room, and he sat on the couch, and I sat on a chair facing him, and we talked for what must have been three hours. One of my life regrets is that I did not record this conversation, um, and and maybe it was good that I didn't, because he may have been a little bit more on guard uh, if I had recorded it. So, um, you know, I spoke about my insecurities and my life challenges dealing with all this stuff, and he... Uh, played a very skilled role at trying to um, share what he knew in the realm of this stuff in a way that wouldn't, uh, you know, wouldn't scare me or freak me out. I have obviously read enough stuff that I know uh, enough of the dark stories in this that that I know that there's stuff out there that is pretty darn creepy. So um, in, in, I'll just I'll hit three points here that we talked about. Um, you know, I said, you know, I, I there's this thing that's going on in this with me that's these synchronicities are showing up in my life, and it's it's it seems directly related. And Bud kind of said, you know, don't worry too much about those. You know, don't don't read too much into that. Um, and it and it sounds in a way like he was dismissive of the synchronicities, and it was a little more complex than that. He was uh, perhaps a little focused on the core of his research, uh, and then he told me a story where his very first UFO investigation uh, was in the mid-70s, and he had uh, spoken to the fellow across the street from him who ran a liquor store. Uh, And it was this, you know, sort of charismatic, uh, classic New Yorker character, and he went in to buy a a bottle of whiskey, and the guy behind the counter basically said, you know, what is going on with this world? You know, like, just the other night, I saw a UFO, and it freaked me out, and and, uh, Bud... Uh, having had his own UFO sighting, was intrigued, and he and he wanted a little more information. And the guy said uh, it happened over in New Jersey at an apartment complex, uh, curiously enough, called the Stonehenge Apartments. And the uh, liquor store owner described a an event uh, where a, basically a flying saucer landed. Little people got out. They walked around. It looked like they were doing soil samples. Curiously enough, that looked a lot like the, the photographs we have all seen from the Apollo missions. 
um, they get back in the flying saucer and they fly away. Now, uh, Bud was very intrigued. He went over to do some research, so he went to the apartment complex, and he knew, he said, you know, there's doormen that, that work at these things. This happened late at night. Maybe the doorman saw something. So he got in contact with the doorman, and uh, as soon as he got in contact with the doorman, they kind of looked at each other, and Bud said, you know, I think I recognize you. And the doorman said to, to Bud, you know, like, I think I recognize you. And they realized they had met uh, each other, and what had happened is someone at the apartment complex had once bought a painting from Bud. Bud came over to deliver it, and uh, because they uh, it wouldn't fit into the elevator properly, they had to use the service elevator, so the doorman helped Bud with the service elevator getting this big giant painting in the elevator and taking it up to the residence. So they had met before, they knew each other. I, and then Bud uh, kind of mused that uh, his very first UFO investigation involved two people that he already knew. So so he initially said, oh, Mike, um, don't, don't worry too much about the synchronicity thing. And then he very casually went on to tell me a story that involved a very profound synchronicity in his first UFO case. And I thought that was a very, um, I don't know how to say it, you know, sort of a wise way to, to give me information. Now, uh, I followed that up a little while later. I said, you know, another thing that's happening is, is I'm having um, like these sort of psychic flashes. And I'm, I feel like I'm having psychic experiences. Like these, these things are coming to me that, that later proved to be true. And I've talked about some of these things throughout the content of my blog. And, and Bud did the same thing. He said, oh, don't read too much into that. You know, don't worry too much about that. Uh, you know, like I wouldn't put too much weight into that. And then he went on to tell a story. And then the story was a man who had been seeing Bud uh, working on his own abduction experiences. And he left a pair of glasses at, at a restaurant. So he realized, oh, I must have left the glasses at the restaurant. And then he had a psychic flash. He said, the glasses are wrapped in a brown paper bag. And they're in the drawer behind the cash register, two drawers down in the middle. And um, so the next day he goes to the restaurant. He says, listen, I believe I may have left my glasses here. And the guy behind the counter says, I don't know anything about glasses. Uh, no one told me about anyone leaving any glasses. He said, okay, they're in a paper bag. They're in the second drawer down behind the cash register in the middle. And sure enough, uh, he opens the drawer and that's where the glasses are. So here he had a psychic flash. And then, and then Bud said, you know, this man, his, his, uh, his client, his patient, um, had had been really scared by this psychic experience. He didn't know how to quantify it. He didn't understand it. Uh, and then Bud went on to say, you know, he had other experiences like that, but he couldn't control them. They just appeared in these sort of flashes. And what he was doing was describing exactly my experience with my psychic flashes, which I couldn't control, and they just appeared. So, you know, once again, you know, he says, don't read too much into the psychic thing. And then he goes on to tell me a story about exactly the type of experience I'm having. And then I asked him one more question. I said, you know, and another thing that, that I've been hearing, though I have no direct experience of it myself, is people who report, you know, poltergeist activity, um, these odd sort of haunted house poltergeist activities in their house after having a uh, an abduction experience. And he said, you know, you know, don't read too much into that. Uh, you know, that gets reported a little bit. But, you know, uh, don't, you know, I'm not too worried about that. And then And then he goes on to say you know, a similar story. He shares a story where a person who had come to him with abduction experiences was sitting at their house and the 
the lamp on a table in the living room while they were sitting there rises up into the air in slow motion while it's lit turns upside down in the air so rotates so you know like a, a lamp you would see in a living room floats turns upside down and then um, I believe it set itself down on the table upside down or it may have just dropped when it was in an upside down stage I can't quite remember but um, so there he did the same thing again you know he's he's cautioning me not to get too you know led off the path by these other experiences but he but then he shares you know yes these experiences are very real uh, and I'll also add that he is someone who uh, kind of dismissed and avoided going into this sort of government conspiracy stuff and I said you know well oh, there's this guy. I keep on hearing this you know crazy government conspiracy stuff it shows up I hear people talk about it you know people are writing books about it and he did the same thing he said you know I'm not sure what to think about that I really don't go down that avenue and then he told a story of someone uh, who was an ambulance driver who showed up on the scene of something that, as far as he could tell, was like a UFO crash. And, and he described uh, what would be like city cops or sheriff department that kept the uh, ambulance driver well away from the scene of what might have been an accident. And then they, ca- they got some blankets from the ambulance driver, and then they came back with something wrapped up in the blankets, something small, and I, you know, he basically hinted that it was something about the size of a gray alien, those little diminutive three, four foot tall gray aliens. It was all wrapped up in a blanket, so it was just speculation. He has no way of knowing. They put it in the back of the ambulance, and then uh, they took the ambulance to the morgue. Uh, the ambulance driver later told of government agents showing up at the, you know where the ambulance was parked and going through and taking everything out of the back of the ambulance all the all the blankets all the cushions anything that uh, that could have been stained let's say and they uh, washed down the back of the ambulance in a way that was kind of absurd you know they took everything and then they scrubbed it down uh, so there'd be no evidence left of anything uh, so you know once again uh, you know, I ask about, you know, this odd government stuff. He says, ah, don't, don't really worry about that. And then he tells me a story about the odd government stuff. So, uh, you know, I give Bud a lot of credit and I'll, and I'll, uh, I'll finish this off with something that I found to be very wise on Bud's part. Now, Bud had dismissed, uh, Leo Sprinkle and his work in a way you know, where he was at odds, very much at odds with the way Leo conducted his investigations. Uh, and I had met Leo, and I'd worked with Leo, and I love Leo. It's, he's a big, warm-hearted, beautiful, open-minded guy. A very rare person on this earth. Uh, so, um, and Bud was challenged by the way Leo did his investigations. Um, uh, though we had spoken for a long time at that visit, and we'd spoken over the phone, and we'd spoken a bunch of other visits, and so I felt that Bud could size me up, um, that he knew that I was skeptical enough not to be drawn into things. Um, so as I was leaving, you know, I live way out in Idaho. Bud lives in New York City. Bud was very weak, and he was very clear that he was phasing out the uh, the type of research he had been doing in his life just because his health issues wouldn't allow him to fill his life with the intense work that he had been doing. So um, we were at the top of the stairs. I thanked him for his time. I gave him a great big hug. He hugged me back, pounded me on my back. It was very sweet. And then as I was leaving, he said, you know, you, you know Leo, right? 
I said, yeah, I know Leo well. I, uh, and he said, you're close to Leo. And I said, yeah, fairly close by Western standards. He's, I live in Idaho. He lives in Wyoming. He said, you might be a good fit for Leo. You sh you may maybe you should be working with Leo. And he, and he said it in a way that, um, that came across as very wise. He didn't say it by accident. He'd obviously thought about it before saying that. And if people dismiss Bud out of hand, I think they're doing it in a way that that might seem too simplistic because Bud was a, I don't want to say a complex man, but I will say a very thoughtful man. And, and, and he was very skilled at reading people. And I felt like he read me very well. And, and I trusted him the way he shared information with me. Um, so that was a very long-winded summation here uh, at the end of Rosemary's uh, excellent conversation. And uh, it addresses a little bit of what we talked about. Um, and I feel like maybe during our conversation, we generalized a little bit on people who do uh, strictly UFO abduction research. And it may have seemed a little unfair. And I just wanted to share that about Bud because uh, these waters are more subtle and more complex than, than sometimes they get portrayed. And I just wanted to make sure that uh, I took this time to share some of the depth of, of someone I respected greatly. Um, uh, we lost someone amazing when Bud Hopkins died uh, last year. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.